Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Mary and I had the privilege last week of going back to the place where I went to seminary, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and we got to see a conference there. It was called Stand Firm, and the conference was intended to prepare pastors and Christian leaders to know how to respond to the differences taking place in our culture as we move further and further into a more post-Christian kind of culture. And one of the addresses was very interesting to me, kind of captivated me by a guy named Andrew Fellows who has a ministry in Cambridge, England to students at Cambridge. And uh, what Andrew talked about was the way our culture over the years has transitioned to a place now where there's a certain kind of obsession we have with ourselves. Uh, the name of the address was Me, My Selfie, and I. <laughs> and that's probably a good indication of, or a good example of what he's talking about. That is the obsession that some of us have with taking pictures of ourselves. Um, Andrew Fellows mentions that in the past it used to be that there was a kind of a paganism where people would worship nature, creation, the sun, the planets. He called it a nature paganism. Today it's a little different. There still exist nature pagans, but today there's a different kind of paganism, what he calls ego paganism, the worship of the self. It used to be that people considered the planets, the sun, to be the center of the universe, Christians, theists, would see God as being the center of the universe. Today, a lot of people see themselves as the center of the universe. Everything revolves around the self, the self-interest. Whereas Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Many people today say, I am perceived, therefore I am. And the main goal we have is drawing attention to ourselves. Andrew Fellows went on and he said, never have we given more attention to self-identity and never have we been more lost about who we are. Who are we? Are we human beings or animals? Are we made in God's image or not? Are we male? Are we female? All of those questions are up for grabs in our culture today and we see people redefining their very nature. And so there's this ironic situation where we're connected as a people, aren't we? We're probably more connected than we've ever been through social media and the internet. We're a well-connected people, but we're a lonely people too. Some of us are well-connected and yet never, ever so lonely as we are now. Well, as we get here to Romans 16, we see a man, Paul, the author of this letter, who is very well connected. That's what this chapter is about, Paul's connections to others. Paul is well connected, and he lists here 26 names of people in this first half of Romans 16, many of whom we don't know much about at all, but one thing we do know from reading this chapter is that Paul had people in his life. In his life. He, he was engaged in others' lives. He had friends. He was with people. He knew people. People knew him. He wasn't living in isolation. He wasn't living a detached lifestyle because he knew that the only way for him to know 
who he was and what his purpose was is to be engaged in relationship with others. And if that's the case for the Apostle Paul, if he needed others in, her, in his life, friends, I think it's pretty clear that you and I need the same thing. We need people. And so here we have Romans 16, not the most exciting passage in the Bible. I will just get you ready. <laughs> but this is the Word of God. And so there is wisdom and grace for us in this passage. So let's stand as we read Romans 16. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Romans 16, 1 through 16. Paul says, writing to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, for they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. God in heaven, we look to you knowing that this is your word inspired by your Holy Spirit given to us for the building up of our faith that we might be trained in righteousness and prepared for every good work. So God, open our eyes to see wonderful things now in this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Paul is a well-connected person, and we get some instruction in this uh, relatively dry passage about how to live a well-connected life. And th the way to begin this is to make the point that Paul is connected to a church, and this is a church that is diversified in one sense and unified in another sense. And so those are my two points here. Paul's connection to a diversified church and to a unified church. So first, Paul's connection to a church of diversity. Now let me point out, first of all, the centrality of the church here. Notice that Paul is not talking here just about a connection to kind of a casual, loose group of friends and buddies that he hangs out with. What Paul has in mind here is his connection to the church. Verses 1, 4, 
5 and 16 mention the church. And he's not just talking about the church universal. Often we'll hear people say, yeah, you know, I don't really need to be part of a local congregation because I'm part of the church universal. But if you look in verse 1, when Paul talks about Phoebe, he mentions that Phoebe is a servant of the church at Centria. He's talking about a specific local congregation in a particular city that was about six miles outside of Corinth. And so what's in mind throughout this passage is not just the church universal, but local congregations of believers. But throughout all these congregations, there is this diversity that shows up in this passage, which is a really wonderful thing to behold. Uh, there are some churches where there seems to be pressure on people to look the same and think the same and act the same. But biblically speaking, there is room for all kinds of diversity in the local church. And in fact, a church ought to be full of diversity. And so let me show you some examples of that. First of all, we see examples of racial diversity here in this local congregation. Uh, <clears throat> Paul was a Jew. Uh, you probably know, but if you look at verse 11, Paul mentions his kinsman, Herodian. Now, when Paul says kinsman there, I don't think he means a family member, a cousin, or a brother. I think what he means is a kinsman in the flesh, as he says earlier in Romans. That is, he means a fellow Jew, a fellow Jewish person. And that is mentioned elsewhere in this passage, too, that word kinsman. But if you look at verse 4, you'll notice that he mentions at the end of that verse uh, the churches of the Gentiles that give thanks as well. So very clearly in this church in Rome we have a mixture of Jew and Gentile, probably other nationalities as well, but clearly there is racial diversity in this church. Now you've heard us talk a lot about our church plant here at New Life. We're sending the Hollowells out to plant in downtown Muncie. I mentioned this a couple Sundays ago uh, that God in His grace has rallied about 70 people so far who have expressed interest in this church plant. But here's an exciting thing. About half of those 70 are non-white people. And the vision that we have for this local congregation is that it would be a multi-ethnic congregation. It seems like God is blessing that effort. Racial diversity in our church plant that reflects the racial diversity that's here in the church of Rome. But there's also a diversity of skills and abilities. We see people here who do all kinds of different things. So verse 6 refers to Mary. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Um, also in verse 12, the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. There's this emphasis on hard workers. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly in what capacity these people are working hard, but their diligence and their tirelessness and their devotion is noticed by Paul. And you know, i got to be honest, when I read this passage and saw this phrase, the first congregation that came to mind was this one. <laughs> you guys are hard workers. This, this is a congregation of hard workers. And it takes hard workers to make a church work. You know, somebody has got to clean the bathroom. Somebody has got to pay the utility bills. Somebody's got to make sure the yard's getting cut out there. There is a lot of work to do to keep a church running, and there are many hard workers doing a variety of different tasks 
keeping this church running. Well, look at verse 3, and we have the mention of these two individuals, Prisca, or Prissa, and Aquila. Now, Prissa is also called Priscilla in other parts of the Scriptures, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Look what it says in verse 4, who risked their necks for my life. Now, again, Paul doesn't give us the details about exactly what was happening there. In Acts chapter 19, a riot breaks out in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila seem to be with Paul at that time. Who knows? Maybe they you know, interceded on their behalf and rescued Paul from a dangerous situation. But in any case, this is one of the wonderful blessings of being connected to others and not trying to live a Christian life on your own, is that you get to know people who love you so much, they'll risk their lives for you. That's one of the beautiful things about being part of the church. Do you have those kinds of people in your life? Do you have people in your life who you know would risk their safety for you? We know as brothers and sisters in new life that that's what we're willing to do for one another here. But we also learn about Priscilla and Aquila looking at Acts chapter 18 that they were actually gifted teachers because the story in Acts chapter 18 is of a guy named named Apollos, who was a new convert, and he was teaching, but his doctrine was a little bit off. He didn't quite understand the gospel, and so it says Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained the way of the gospel more accurately to him, corrected him, challenged him, and taught him. And so we see another skill showing up, <coughs> showing up here, the gift of teaching in Priscilla and Aquila. But we also see in verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. So, once again, why are they in prison? We don't know. We can speculate here. Paul was in prison. Why? He was preaching the gospel. He was out in the community being bold, presenting Jesus. Maybe that's what was going on with these two as well, Andronicus and Junia. Bold evangelists, unafraid of the authorities risking themselves and their safety to preach the gospel. We don't all have that gift. Not everybody is called to do that kind of thing, but these two were gifted in this particular way. And then in verse 13, we have yet another example of a diversity of skill or ability. We have this woman who is the mother of Rufus. Rufus, we think, was probably the son of Simon, the one who was called to carry Jesus' cross. Do you remember that in the gospel? Later on in Mark, it says that Simon had a son named Rufus, and so this might be him, but this verse refers more to his mother. And Paul says, this mother of Rufus was a mother to me as well. And so here we have a kind of a behind-the-scenes way for this maternal woman to bless the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, as he preached the gospel. What did she do? Again, we don't know. Maybe she made meals for him. Maybe when Paul was sick, she brought him in and gave him a bed to sleep in and chicken noodle soup and a thermometer. I mean, we don't know, but this woman mothered him and cared for him and was a blessing to him. Great diversity of skills. Every church needs a diversity of skills in order to function as God intended. And we see that here. We also have diversity of social class. Names like Ampliatus, verse 8, Urbanus in verse 9, and Hermes in verse 14. These are all known to be slave names. 
very likely these individuals were slaves or belonged to families that were enslaved. And so they were coming out of a very kind of lower socioeconomic place in their communities. But when you look at verse 1, we learn about Phoebe. And in verse 2, it says uh, that, uh, that the church should welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, that word patron means benefactor. And so what is believed is that Phoebe was a woman of means. She was a wealthy lady, and she used her wealth to contribute to the church and to support financially Paul himself. And so this is just something that just occurred to me, and I always hesitate a little bit to say something that just occurs to me uh, in, in the pulpit. But, um, you know, some people have a problem with Christians or missionaries going to others and asking for financial assistance for their ministries. It would seem here that we have some biblical support for that. Paul was supported by Phoebe. And so there's nothing unbiblical about that. So we have this social class diversity here. People from slave families, families, people with a lot of money, have others with, you know, large houses here, enough to accommodate a church. They were probably wealthy as well. So diversity in social class. And then we also have very clear gender diversity in this church. Eight of the 26 individuals mentioned here are women. And so women clearly had a fundamental, significant role in the ministry of the church in Rome. And the first one mentioned is Phoebe, again, here in verse 1. Now, I want to take a moment just to talk about something because it's kind of an issue in our denomination and maybe a question that some of you have asked um, about women serving in this particular church. Um, In verse 1, Phoebe is called a servant of the church. Now, in your translation of the Bible, you might have a little footnote there, and it says next to the word servant that that word can also be translated deaconess. And so some read this passage to mean that and say that women should be ordained to the office of deacon. And so, again, this is something that our denomination is kind of wrestling with right now. Now, it is true that that word for servant is diakonos, it it is the word that is used for deacon. And there are other places in the New Testament, like Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3, where it's very clear that the word is used in reference to the ordained office of deacon. However, that word is clearly used in a more broad way than just to the ordained office of deacon, because that word, diakonos, is also used to refer to the Apostle Paul. He's called a diaconess. It's also used to refer to Jesus. Jesus is called a diaconess. In Romans 13.4, the word is used to describe the government. Paul says the government is God's servant, God's diaconess. So, the word is used in a number of different ways, and in fact, in 27 out of the 30 times the word is used in the New Testament, it refers more generally to a servant, not to the ordained office, deacon. 
In three occasions it does refer to that. And so that's the debate. Is that what's meant here or not? And I think we have to look outside of this passage in order to make the case that a woman should be ordained to the office of deacon. Maybe that case can be made, and I'm open to hearing the argument for it, but I wouldn't use this passage for that. But here is a point that is very clear. Again, women were very actively involved in this church. Women were contributing significantly to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Women were using a diversity of gifts to serve others and to advance the gospel, and every church that wants to be biblical ought to do the same. This whole thing is made even more significant when you consider the low status that women had in the Greco-Roman culture at that time. The fact that so many women were involved at that time would have been seen as a radically progressive move. It is Christianity that granted to women many rights and opportunities that they didn't have at the time. There's a historian named Rodney Stark, a professor at Baylor University, who has written this. He says, in a Greco-Roman world where women were severely disadvantaged and many upper-class women even were relegated to nearly complete seclusion, Christianity accorded women considerable status and an opportunity to lead. Beyond that, Christianity made life far more attractive for all female members. So, great diversity in the church, and great diversity is what we want in this church as well. But Paul was also well-connected, not just to a church of diversity, but a church of unity. This church was unified in at least two different ways. So I'm breaking this up into a practical unity and a theological unity. First of all, there's a practical unity involved here. Um, you all know probably Hebrews um, 10 that has to do with the meeting of Christians. Here's what it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Don't neglect meeting together. There's a command from the Bible to us to meet together. So that's a practical way we express our unity. We meet together like we're doing right now. That's what this is, a worship meeting. Now, when we look at this passage, though, we might ask this question, where did the church in Rome meet? And if you look at verse 5, it says, greet also the church in their house, it says. And so some people take this passage and say, you see, this is the way the church really needs to function. We need to be meeting in homes. We need to be meeting in houses. We shouldn't be meeting in buildings like this. Why spend all the money and time to erect something like this when the Bible says we ought to meet in houses? And there's a pretty you know, strongly flourishing house church movement in the United States. Of course, the church in China is growing primarily through the house church movement. So is this telling us that we need to be meeting in houses instead of buildings? And I think the answer to that is no. Some things to consider here. First of all, there's a reason why the early Christians met in houses, and that's because they didn't have any other place to meet. I mean, this was a brand new movement. This was a fringe movement. This was a, a religion that was illegal. This was a movement without resources. They didn't have the opportunity to have buildings. They met in houses primarily out of necessity. There was just simply no other place to meet. 
And if you look throughout the New Testament, you'll find that the Christians actually met in other places as well. They didn't just meet in houses. Acts 5.12 says the Christians were meeting in a place called Solomon's Portico. In Acts 3.1, they met in the temple. In Acts chapter 19, they met in lecture halls in the city of Ephesus. So Christians did not meet exclusively in homes. Fact is, if you're going to have a church, you got to meet somewhere. <laughs> and if you get 30 or 40 people or so and you start getting above that number, it's awfully hard to meet in a house. And when Constantine legalized Christianity a few centuries later, that's when we saw church buildings springing up. And you know what? There's a lot of advantages to a church building. Some people are attracted to the house church movement because it's kind of informal. Um, it's more intimate, more family-like. There's not as much structure. They, they just feel more free. But, you know, I've read some things about the house church in, in, in China, the house church movement in China, which is a wonderful thing, and God's doing great things, but they also say, because of the informality of it all, sometimes people have no idea who's going to preach from Sunday to Sunday. Sometimes people have no idea where they're going to meet from Sunday to Sunday. Sometimes people don't know when they're going to meet from Sunday to Sunday. A lot of cults and heresies are springing up uh, in the church, which is one reason why I feel compelled to, to go and try to contribute there. But there's something good, there's something healthy about a certain amount of structure in the church. I, I would just submit to you that you wouldn't like it so much if you didn't know when we were meeting from Sunday to Sunday or where we were meeting or where the nursery was or where the bathroom was. Those things are clear because of 